0: Welcome to Faith Seeking Understanding, a place dedicated to the discussion of Christian faith in 21st century life. C.S. Lewis said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. So join us as we endeavor to understand 21st century life through the lens of Christian faith. I'm your host, Alan Bevere, pastor, professor, author, and lover of Five Alarm Food. Come and seek with me. Good day to everybody. Welcome uh, to Faith Seeking Understanding. I am Alan Bevere and I am the self-appointed and chair of podcast theology and culture at Faith Seeking Understanding University where all seekers are welcome to ponder profound things free of charge. And I'm so glad that you're with us and I want to go welcome our guest in a minute, But I want to let you know of uh, an upcoming, uh, our monthly episode of Calmly Considered is coming up again in a couple of weeks. Uh, Our July uh, episode is up where Michael Cruz and I talk about inflation, what's up with inflation. Uh, In August, we will be talking about Christian nationalism. So I just want to let you know that. And today is the first of a new uh, series of episodes we're going to be doing here every month or six weeks or so, calling Courageous, I'm calling it courageous conversations where we will talk about an important issue, uh, even perhaps controversial because we don't worry about and we don't avoid controversy here. And so the first one today, uh, I'm glad to have my friend, Dr. Dan Hawk, who has been uh, on the podcast videocast before. Uh, Dan is the uh, professor of Old Testament and Hebrew at Aram Theological Seminary. Uh, welcome, Dan.
1: Thank you, Alan. It's great to be here and thanks for the invitation. Well, it's
0: great to have you here. And now and it's kind of interesting because we now have offices at least on the same floor. Since <laughs> since I'm now a pastor in exile being retired, the seminary was good enough to give me a little space to hold up. And, and uh, so anyway, but it's good to be there. Um, good so, to have you on the floor. And uh, I would be remiss if I did not mention, let me do this very quickly, um, I'm going to uh, put up. If you're on the video cast, you can see a, a picture of Dan's latest book. You haven't had a book since then. This is your latest. Is that correct? Right. It yeah. Correct. Yeah. And uh, I'm the, the description um, or the uh, link to the book will be in the descriptions of the video cast on YouTube and the podcast. Uh, and it's Dan's latest book called "The Violence of the Biblical God." Canonical Narrative in Christian Faith, and I want to uh, hold that book up and recommend it to you. It is an excellent book, and if you're uh, interested and curious and perplexed by the uh, issue of violence in the biblical text and God in the midst of the violence, I would recommend this book to you highly. Uh, So there it is, The Violence of the Biblical God. Okay, Uh, Dan, uh, today uh, we're talking about um american mythologies the cover stories we tell ourselves you have and i want to get to uh indigenous peoples in uh specifically in just a little bit because i know you've worked with them now you use the uh terminology indigenous people is that better than native american or not Um, or doesn't it matter
1: it strikes me that that is uh, that is a preferred Mm -hmm. um, designation for a lot of so indigenous north american as opposed to native american but
0: okay uh, okay i'm just curious uh, i mean i think it's important that we get labels and titles and and names right um and that we're accurate we know indian is just a misnomer right right uh but well an
1: indigenous really connects the people here in north america to other indigenous peoples around the world well that's a good point Uh, and um, to some shared experiences with yeah. Uh, colonization. Yeah. Okay.
0: Okay. I was just curious about that. So indigenous peoples. Now, um, could you tell me, tell us just a little bit about, cause you have been in conversation, I'll, I'll say a conversation uh, and building relationships with indigenous, pe- uh, indigenous uh, peoples, uh, Americans. So, I guess in Ohio, but maybe elsewhere. <laughs> what what has that involved? What what has that involved in your work? You've done this for years now, haven't you? Yeah,
1: yeah. Well, um, yeah. I, it, mainly, uh, it's not so much a work as it is just making relationships with friends. So, uh, about twenty years or so, I began thinking about. I uh, was doing some work in the Book of Joshua, and I began was challenged actually to think about the implications of my work for. The, the mission of the church um and uh you know how does how does Joshua speak to the church and uh, as i thought about it i i thought about um the the similarities between what i would call our the the american charter narrative uh-huh. of manifest destiny and um the the book of Joshua so actually i i, I started doing some speaking in 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 and around Ohio on issues of um, just raising these issues of uh, uh, our history and and how we we talk about our history and met some indigenous people in some of those arenas and developed friendships and those friendships and relationships led to other friendships and relationships so i'm I'm just privileged to um to have good friends and um who are indigenous and can um just uh and, and i've been involved in some other organizations since then and some other initiatives um uh having to do with the doctrine of discovery and dismantling the doctrine of discovery and uh, so that's that's uh, those relationships which i cherish have led to um a number, a number of larger involvements and initiatives along the general area of dealing with and um, thinking through yeah. the the colonial uh, history that um, birthed the United States and and uh, other nations.
0: Okay. Wow. Thank you. I appreciate uh, letting us letting us know that. So, so your work—it's interesting. Then your work in the Old Testament kind of led you into this, didn't it? Yeah. 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 Wow. And
1: and actually just just some some non-white colleagues who said yeah. you need to do something with this work um beyond the you know the breaks out of the academic kind of in, insular yeah um, yeah place where I was. So yeah. that seemed like a right and good thing to do and and I was on my way.
0: And the and a reminder of the ever contemporary uh uh meaning of the scripture for us as we're, if we're willing to uh, be open to it. Uh, yeah, okay, so so let's get into this. Um, so you mentioned uh, doctrine of discovery, we're going to get to that, but, um, you know, we all tell stories, we all have stories, family has stories, I suppose if you and I sat down over a cup of coffee, and you would shared about your family, and I shared about my family history, we would have those stories we would tell, you know, those stories that maybe reveal something of the character of, of the family, where we've come from, that kind of thing. Churches have these kinds of stories they tell about themselves throughout history. Um, <clears throat> and uh, communities and nations have stories that they tell about themselves. And you know, no story is neutral, right? No one, there's, there's a, there is no such thing as the Sergeant Joe Friday, just give us the facts, ma'am, kind of story. I realize I've dated myself in using that the dragnet expression, and you understand it, so you've dated yourself. Um, but but there's no way to tell a neutral story. Stories have perspective. And sometimes the stories we tell, they can cover, they can cover some truths we would prefer not be told. Is that right? I
1: think that's fair to say.
0: So, give me uh, one. Well, first of all, let's talk about the word mythology because we're talking about American mythology. So, um, you know, we, when, what's a mythology? What's a what's a mythology? Oh
1: well, I I understand it in in this in the sense of a mythology is a a collection of narratives and symbols. And metaphors that together express uh, a particular group's uh, idea of reality, their sense of their own identity, their relationship to other groups, uh, the reason that they're in the world. See all of these, um, all of these very deep um, feelings, sentiments, convictions, ideas. Uh, about who we are, whoever the we is, who we are, and um, uh, how 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 we have a place in this world. Mm-hmm. so um, and and those those pretty much, um, I take it, operate under the surface of our consciousness until we lift these symbols out and okay, shine them and and talk about them. so, The the, every nation, every collective, every corporate group, uh, in a sense, has this collection of symbols and metaphors and narratives and stories that are very deeply held, and uh, everyone in the group knows them in a way, uh, and they they tug not only at at the mind but the heartstrings. So there's heartstrings. So there's. For example, there's a, a literary critic named Richard Slotkin who who uh, has written a, a good deal about um, myth, uh, American mythology as it's reflected in American literature. So, what is our literature? How does our literature appropriate certain ideas and convictions and myths and symbols? And what does that say? So, studying our literature can give us an insight again into those those. Ideas and myths that we find uh, definitive about who we are, and, and yeah. uh, so Slotkin is 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 interesting interested in really elaborating those, uh, because if if we really uh, if we we don't realize the power that myths have in influencing our convictions and our ideas, and he's he's interested in of examining myths as a as as an important practice
0: yeah okay great that's a great thanks for that explanation i think of uh you know the word mythos in the greek which means sacred story so uh right mythology is a sacred story we, we hear the word myth and the first thing we think of it's not true but right. that's that's really a little bit of a simplistic thing a mythology can have truth Uh, To it, but it's a story that is sacred and let me throw this in for you to respond to. God helped the person that starts to mess with the details of the myth. Right. Yeah, right. Sure. So, yeah, so you
1: you can you can take that symbol and do different things with it. So, for example, I mean, think of uh, the gunslinger um the 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 individual who who uses violence uh to resolve disputes and to bring law and order uh that's a symbol of something that i would argue is a deeper conviction in um and has been since since the beginning of american culture which is you know sometimes you you just need to settle your differences at the point of a gun
0: right right yeah, okay. So that is yeah, and yeah. Um so let's um w- with that in mind, bringing that up. Uh let's talk about um the 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 and you mentioned it uh in your opening comments, would you call the American charter narrative of manifest destiny. Now, when I grew up, And we taught, I learned about Manifest Destiny in American history. Uh, Sometimes it was called that. Sometimes I remember the textbooks calling it Western Expansion, which is pretty benign, right? (laughs) Uh, (laughs) uh, We didn't talk about, but it didn't talk about conquest. That was implied because there were people there. But um, what is the chart? Why is Manifest Destiny? First of all, what is it? And why is it a charter narrative of, of American history?
1: Well, um, le- let me talk about charter narrative first. Sure. And um, here I've, my thinking has really been shaped by a scholar of nationalism um, by the name of Anthony Smith, uh, who taught at the London School of Economics, uh, written a uh, n- number of works in which he argues that the nationalist movements that generated the nation states we presently have in Western, particularly in in Europe and in North America, um, are really all about, you talk about mythos, a sacred story, he talks about the rendering the nation into what he calls a sacred communion. So the nation itself is an object of veneration, and that's that's the way in a sense that you, you keep people together, people. So, so this, every nation has a narrative, uh, a story that is definitive. Um, This is, this is our common story. Mm -hmm. And, and so a charter narrative or uh, particularly an origin narrative, a charter narrative is basically that story that talks about who we are. Uh, it 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 uh, encodes and expresses our our values, our sense of identity, our sense of mission. And it's a story that we all know. And at least ostensibly, uh, we we believe is true and communicates really the essential um, tenets of what we believe about ourselves. Okay. So, um, so the our our narrative, <laughs> excuse me, in a way, part of that narrative has to do with this idea that we are a chosen people. so from even from the colonial era, and especially from uh, the found the generation the founding generations, the United States uh, has identified itself as the new Israel, a new chosen people that God and God brought our ancestors uh, through a passage through the water into a promised land where we created a new a new culture, a new civilization that brought the best of the old world uh, which had been corrupted in some ways uh, and joined it to this innovative spirit of freedom associated uh, and enabled by uh, our uh, settlement of this continent so we have a destiny and mm-hmm. and it's it's it and that, and that destiny is is clearly articulated uh, by particularly in the founding generation um, god we have a we have a un, united states has a unique relationship with god and god has, or providence or even Uh, the force and tide of progress. However you express that, (coughs) we Americans believe that we are exceptional. Yeah. Um, We we have a destiny to bring freedom and democracy uh, and spread these ideals um, uh, throughout throughout the world. So that, that idea, that narrative, is something that's deeply embedded in our national psyche. Yeah. And <clears throat> that destiny, in a sense, was made manifest by the fact that, that we as a people, it's specifically a, a, a white settler nation, virtually swept across the continent as an irresistible force. So our destiny was made manifest in our victories, our innovation, uh, our acquisition of land, our movement westward, Um, and that's who we are. We are a people who stand for freedom and liberty. We were created as a nation through the hand of providence or as a consequence of history to um, to be this agent, uh, progress, innovation, liberty, and democracy for the benefit of the entire world, and this is all of these uh, ideas are, are 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 just woven through our historical literature.
0: Okay, <laughs> you know, so so of course we come here. That is, Europeans come here, uh, but of course. Uh, there are two things happening. One is uh, we are bringing slaves who I guess didn't get the memo that they're free. <laughs> uh, and of course the land is inhabited here. Um, so we're here. Uh, this is our narrative. We're called, we're chosen. What, what happens with the uh, people who are already here who uh, have lived on the land for generations and generations.
1: Yeah, so there are a lot. There are different ways of talking about that. Um, one very prominent rationale for why we why we deserve to be here is that yes, the land was inhabited, mm-hmm. but um, not by by very many people. So the people who were here, there was a lot of empty, which in the European sense meant untilled ground, unordered ground. It was a wilderness. And uh, so it was, in a sense, empty. And so uh, it it would have been selfish for these indigenous peoples to hog all of this territory for their own. So we came in as uh, a people who (coughs) settled in the land, improved the land, um, unleashed the land's potential. So that's, that's one way of talking about why we deserve to be here. Another way that, and, and more prominent, was through uh, what's, what's called the doctrine of discovery. And uh, that was a body of international law. Uh, originating in some papal bulls from the 15th century, in which the pope, uh, in his capacity as the the, um, in a sense, uh, Christ representative on earth, uh, as a Christian monarch, uh, believed that he had he had the the authority. Uh, Because the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And so the representative, this pope, the representative of of Christ has the authority to disperse lands as he sees fit. And so the papal bulls essentially uh, said that um, uh, newly discovered lands that were not Christian could be confiscated and people enslaved um, and uh, all types of things. Um, and certainly needed to be evangelized. Um, but uh, in order to take dominion or take possession of this territory and wrest it from either pagans who are living there or demonic influences or, or all types of other things. And that that language then becomes part of the way that European powers decide which power gets what territory, mm-hmm. and, and 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 all under the assumption, because they are Christian monarchs, they have a right, and indeed, in some cases, a mandate, a mission to take land that is inhabited by pagans and turn it into Christian land. Yeah. And turn the people there into Christians. So this so whoever, is its doctrine of discovery, because whatever power discovers this place owns it. That's yeah. So it so is. the
0: key is is Christians discover it, not that there were people there before who discovered it who weren't weren't Christians. That really doesn't count. Yeah. Um, this is so the cover story is, and this is going to be my, this is my description. The, the cover story is a kind of using a twisted interpretation of the Great Commission, in a sense right? Uh, we not, we'd only have the mandate to make disciples, but we have the mandate to take land. Uh, we have the mandate to settle. We have the mandate to do all kinds of things because the earth is the Lord's, if you will, as the psalmist says. Uh, let me give some quick history for folks who, who are not sure. The the a papal bull is a public decree and uh, you were talked about the, the popes in the 15th century. You said 15th century, correct? Yeah. And um, but the one thing I wanted to get to was, this gets uh, codif- codified, codified, codified into American law uh, in a case Johnson versus Macintosh. And this is 1823. Uh, and not to get into too many detail, but basically the effect of the ruling was, and it was a unanimous ruling by the court. Uh, John Marshall was the chief justice at the time, uh, considered to be uh, uh, the most influential justice we've had but basically affirmed the doctrine of discovery. And in fact, he quoted the papal bulls in his ruling. So effectively that codified it into American law.
1: Right, right. And there were actually a trio of uh, decisions that worked this out, but you're you're quite right. So that the, uh, <coughs> excuse me, Johnson v. McIntyre, of course, had a uh, court case had to do with a question of who actually was held title to the land. What did the indigenous people have an intrinsic title to the land or did the European settlers who came in have title to the land? And simplifying Marshall and Marshall actually wrote the opinion, simplifying Marshall's argument, basically the idea where he came down was, well, our nation is governed by laws that have their origins and are connected to british law and british law uh, accepted the doctrine of discovery as uh, 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 a guarantee of title of the land and since our legal traditions derive from britain um i guess doctrine of discovery applies to us as well So we have title to the land because our legal tradition says that we do.
0: Yeah.
1: And, and if, if, God,
0: people, you know, if God has chosen us and called us.
1: Right. Although, right, that, that's, that's the kind of the background. Yeah. I uh, believe he didn't. I don't think he went into, into that. But the indigenous people only have a right to occupy. Right. And therefore can be moved off.
0: Yes, and which is what has happened, uh, constantly and constantly. And along with that, I might add, uh, unprovoked massacres along the way.
1: Well, yes, and, and that's, that's actually another issue.
0: Uh,
1: yeah, um, there, there has been, in a sense, gun violence directed toward Indigenous people from the very beginning. So um, even before the founding of Jamestown, when Sir Walter Raleigh established a military colony on Roanoke yeah. Island, um, the colonists who were there came in woefully unprepared. Uh, so they tried to trade with the indigenous people around them and who were glad to do that out of their surplus, but when they no longer had a surplus, they stopped trading. So. So the you know the the soldiers just decided well we're going to go take what we want and and uh, and there was there was violence there was preemptive military strikes uh, and the same the same kind of recourse to violence happened within a few years of the founding of Plymouth Colony so we have Pilgrims actually taking violence within a few years against a native a native tribe that they were worried were going to attack them so better better to strike first and to kill as many of them as we can than to wait for them to um, strike us so so massacres in a sense have been they they've been a part of settler indigenous interactions from the outset of the of the colonial period
0: and the thing that disturbs me about that more than anything is you know since i've been a kid i've been a big history fan i mean history was my favorite stuff class and and i i gobbled up everything i could I just don't remember a lot of that being taught. Uh, I mean, certainly the massacres and the fighting was taught. I mean, it was there. And there were certainly some injustices that were reported in that. But, you know, just the continued uh, thumping and killing of indigenous peoples and and just the continued uh systematic way to discriminate as we move forward was really not emphasized a whole lot.
1: Yeah I, I grew up the same way. It just never occurred to me. I knew growing up that that um the lands that that my my city was was on had been had once been indigenous people's land and yeah and that we'd signed some kind of treaty and They left as a result and we got to live in the land, but it just never occurred to me to um, do a little digging into that story. That was just the story, again, that defined our reality. Yeah.
0: And and, um, by the way, you talked about uh, people, uh, Europeans coming here, the land was saying the land was empty. I remember back and it's been, I think I was in college at the time. I read a historical account of the Constitutional Convention of 1789, and I never will forget that there was a section of the book talking about that one of the dilemmas that those who were writing this Constitution were concerned about because they knew there was land west. Uh, they didn't have land west of the Mississippi yet, but they had a lot of unexplored land that states had already claimed, even though most people had never been there. And they were concerned about how they were going to administrate such a large piece such large pieces of real estate that were uninhabited. <laughs> I mean, this is the way they thought, uh, you know.
1: Yeah, well, and, and particularly when we get into the, um, you know, the, the revolutionary period, um, and and the first you know the, the administrations the Washington administration Adam Jefferson I mean one of the one of the big um, one of the big impulses was um, the need to raise money. Mm-hmm. Um, so for example, the the new nation after the Revolutionary War we were deeply in debt, and so people looked to those those lands that we regarded as lightly inhabited and thought, wow, um, we could sell that land to developers and settle that land and we can pay down that debt pretty significantly. Wow. Um, and, And the problem of administration, the reason they dealt with how are we going to administrate this is because there were thousands of squatters who didn't really care anything about what What about the government's plans. They just wanted land. They saw it, they took it. And if there were people there um, who were indigenous, then they did what they could
0: to
1: whatever they they felt they should to eliminate um, those people.
0: Yeah, I I wanna briefly just touch upon something with the doctrine of discovery and also with the Supreme Court, because I, I wanna say for those who Uh, And there are Americans who think basically, yes, we still have problems, but racism is largely over, at least systemic and embedded racism and uh, mistreatment of indigenous people is largely over. Uh, I want to uh, have you react to a recent Supreme Court case, uh, Oklahoma versus Castro Huerta, and I think I pronounced that correctly. Um, <clears throat> it, it concerned Eastern Oklahoma, the tribal lands in Eastern Oklahoma, Appa- apparently, uh, the, since it's tribal land, the tribes have been allowed to, they've had jurisdiction over what normally would be state law elsewhere. And they've been able to administrate that. There was a suit on that because there was somebody who was I believe murdered or abused. I think it was abused. And the long and short of it is, the majority decided uh, in favor of the state, saying that they could adjudicate uh, state over over the tribes. They, they could basically take control of adjudicating state crimes over the tribe. And Neil Gorsuch, who is was the one conservative justice who voted against this, uh, and he voted with the three more liberal justices, uh, issued a stinging, uh, dissent, and he says this, and I want you to react to this and give, me, give us some other history. He says, he, he says truly a more historical and mistaken statement of Indian law would be hard to fathom, he writes. He says, one can only hope the political branches and future courts will do their duty to honor this nation's promises, even as we have failed today to do our own. It's just well, another example, right we have we ultimately have the right well, and it it goes
1: all the way back to um, to a, a long pattern of not honoring treaties, yeah, not honoring agreements that we've made, uh, not standing by legislation that would be to the benefit so i'm I'm thinking for for example of of another court case um. I believe it was called City of Cheryl versus Oneida Nation, where the Oneida Nation came and and bought some what had been ancestral land in the city of Cheryl, and there was a court case about you know whether that you know whether they it should be taxed, Um, and essentially the rationale uh, in the opinion that was actually written by Ruth Bader Ginsburg was that. you know, if 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 somehow the courts validated uh, the Oneidas as the owner of the uh, uh, the owners of this property and the rightful owners, um, it would just really mess things up, <laughs> and 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 it just wasn't practical. Yeah, and it sounds to me like you know the you know this most recent at least in what I've read of the rule, it sounds sounds like the, the same kind of rationale. Well, yeah, yeah they, you know, technically, they have a point. But if, if, we, if we really ruled in favor of the indigenous people, and that would just mess up everything horribly. It, and it just wouldn't be practical.
0: Yeah, that sounds I, that that's a great hermeneutic. It sounds like it, we could, we often apply that to the the Bible, the Sermon on the Mount. We, I, I know what Jesus said, but we can't follow that because that would really <laughs> mess things up, right? Wow, fascinating. Um, let's talk a little bit, because I, I, since we're on this subject, I want to go back to it. Uh, the issue, because part of this whole thing uh, is an issue of indigenous peoples uh, being, you know, in a sense, conquered. They are, we're, we're conquered, and they're the minority now, and they, they're living in a, in, in a, a majority uh, European land. Having to make their way. And one of the things that minorities have to uh, uh, endure, and this is not just an American culture, but they have to endure stereotyping. Um, and I want to talk about that with Native Americans because, um, you know, we have had a sea change in the last three or four years in reference to team mascots, you know, which you know of. And, and of course, the Redskins. Uh, uh, mascot uh, is is no longer, and of course, my Cleveland Indians I grew up with are now the Cleveland Guardians. And and you know, I will say, Dan, twenty years ago, I didn't understand that. I didn't understand that problem. I grew up in Cleveland. I was an Indians fan, loved Chief Wahoo. But you you and you know, our friendship over the years has helped me to see and change my mind on that. So I was very happy when they dropped Chief Wahoo and and uh, changed their name to the Guardians. Uh, and now I feel like I can watch the games with a conscience. <laughs> you had made it tough for me, which is good. I'm glad you did. Um, but let's talk about that. What, you know, because there are people who hear this and they say, I don't understand what the issue is. And you know and again, I'm tr- I try to be sympathetic with them because I can say two decades ago I didn't understand what the issue was, but now I do. What, what's the problem here?
1: Well, the, the problem, uh, and sometimes you'll you'll have people say, "Well, you know, I know Indigenous people that don't have a problem with this," and and yeah. you know, but most of the the people I know um, feel it's just that these mascots. First of all, they're re- they they are um, they're just one other way that that um, Indigenous people are demeaned and and degraded. There's and there's been a there's been a really strong cultural impulse. Um, for a long I mean since the early ni- uh, 1800s to render indigenous people invisible yeah. and kind of assign them to um, uh, the past but not to recognize you know their presence uh, and their vitality in this nation in the present and um, mascots are demeaning. Uh, I've had friends share who uh, you know who um, about, Um, you know their kids going to school and and uh, people learning that they're indigenous and then kind of doing war hoops around them and Mm -hmm. and uh, talking you know and and really just think of Chief Wahoo and the kind of grotesque caricature that that he was hardly I think a flattering depiction so I mean for me it's it's it says more about you know who we are as settler people. You know that that we we just need to continue. I mean, yeah, well, yeah. It's it's demeaning and it's it's um, and you may feel put off by it, but get over it. I mean, this is not that big of a deal. But if you if you've endured discrimination, exclusion, yeah. dehumanization in all manner, I mean, for 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 centuries now. Yeah, my my sense is you'd have a very different feeling about other people. Uh, depicting you in certain ways, and then saying, "Well, we're really honoring you," yeah, um, just just doesn't add up.
0: Yeah, it's a. And the other thing is, it strikes me with this Dan. Well, first of all, Chief Wahoo is becomes he becomes the happy savage who is okay with his lot, right? He is okay being sideshowed, uh, and I think of uh, Wild Bill, uh, his shows where you know, even. Uh, Indians, great Indian chiefs are reduced to performing there for various reasons. Uh, And, uh, and it it helps assuage, uh, it helps assuage the conscience of the conquerors, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, because I think part of the issue here for some people is if I have to recognize that chief Wahoo is a, a racist stereotype, if I have to recognize that Uh, Redskin was historically a very racist name. Uh, Then I have to admit, I have to really be honest and say maybe in my own history, uh, in our history, um, it blows off the cover story. It blows off the mythology.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and it just becomes uh, uh, just one more way that white society has taken uh, at liberty and for our own reasons, what we want from mm-hmm. Indigenous people. So we're going to make you into a mascot, and you know, for because we want to. Yeah. And you know. And you can't. To, and you don't have any say. Yeah. Or if if you yeah. have a say, just really, yeah. you know, it's it's minor.
0: Well, it's so, also a way to give to give other people their identities, right? I get to determine who you are, yeah. Yeah. And and uh, by the way, I see this a lot. You are seen, yeah, yeah. I see this a lot in our concurrent context. I see it with um, uh, whites trying to tell blacks what their experiences should be. You know, that's what they're in a sense saying is though that's not your experience. You know, I like to call it white explaining. You know, we, you know um, yeah. we haven't experienced what they have, but we know better than they what they've experienced. And men do this to women. I mean, we, we all do it and can do it in different contexts. I don't wanna say I'm ever immune from it, but it, it's real easy to make these evaluations when I'm not standing in those shoes. Yeah. Um, and it really does involve a lot of being willing to listen, to listen to the stories of others. And just speak less, don't you think? I mean, you've obviously you have, you've listened to a lot of stories over the years uh, with indigenous folks.
1: Yeah, and I think it it really it, it just begins with respect. Mm-hmm. Um, and you 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 talk about cover stories. I mean, our, we white white society and and white culture has constructed. Who indigenous people are and how they relate to the story of America that is in a sense our story, um, so yeah, you're very right we we've determined their their identities, we tell their stories, and you know that part of that cover story, part of the denial mechanisms yeah. are are these kind of pseudo honoring practices or kind of a romanticizing of the, the noble savage or yeah. kind of a nostalgic looking back. You know, there, you know, there was a time when we existed together and enjoyed the fruit of the land <laughs> yeah. together, but um, they, 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 just, they just don't hold. They it's, just don't hold.
0: It's painful to acknowledge that our history is not all sweetness and light, but yet Christians of all people, should be able to acknowledge that because when you read the Bible, (laughs) (laughs) you know, it is clearly not all sweetness and light. Um, It's just hard for us uh, to hear these stories. You know, I got people who have said to me, well, I'm not gonna apologize for being white, to which I say, who's told you to do that? Nobody has said that's the problem. The problem, we've talked about culture, but nobody has said that, you know, And again, I don't even know what that means in a sense is like, I, you know, to me, I mean, I, I, I don't have any pride in being white. I just Mm -hmm. am. I'm just white. I don't have have any pride in that. And, and, you know, so I, I, but I, I think that these are ways to really mitigate what's trying to be said that we, that it's okay to face our history. It's okay to face, uh yeah yeah not not
1: not because we want to bash our our nation or bash the church but because we love our nation we love we love the church and um you know there there's some deep-seated sin that has that is is just you know it's it's just deeply embedded in our collective unconscious and uh I mentioned guns and the infatuation of guns and gun violence and settling things at the end of a gun. I mean, look at what's happening right now with the explosion of gun violence. At the same time, we've got all kinds of issues of racism raising their... So I would suggest that what we're seeing in the present day is the eruption of of stuff that, that has been replicated over and over and over. And it distorts the way we think. It distorts... Uh, our our perspectives it 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 distorts our values, so you um, so there's this, there's a Bible verse that's been going around for a long time, right? Sec- people who want to heal, we want to heal our land. Second Corinthians seven fourteen, what? you know, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and so on, and, and 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 pray and uh, turn from their uh, evil ways. You know then I will hear from heaven and and forgive their sins, so on. Well, you know, if you're really serious about praying that prayer, um it's it's probably important to to be aware of what evil ways um uh, are are really shaping us. Yeah, I mean, you know you mentioned the, the church. I mean, we we Christians have the vocabulary. We have the we have a healing theology. I mean, we know that sin, unless it is recognized acknowledged um confessed renounced um, it's just unless you deal with sin it's just going to keep warping yeah. you it just, it sin does not fade out over time and if it's that if it if it works that way with individuals it works that way with with collective entities
0: and how odd it is for christians some christians to say there's no such thing as systemic sin or evil or embedded sin and evil when we believe when when you have the Bible, when we believe that sin, sin, there's something, something's not right with us, right, Right. and it's not just right with me as an individual, but it's not right with us as a collective who live together in societies, I mean, that there is something deeply rooted and embedded in this, and it's astounding to me, you know, Stanley Hauerwas always said that the problem with with, uh, Christians uh, in America is that we do have, as you just said, we do have the resources to deal with these issues and we have the language to deal with these issues, but we don't employ it. We don't use it. Um, and so, you know, so we continue to sound like everybody else. I'm glad you've talked about second Chronicle 714. That was on my checklist to ask you about because, because whenever someone posts that on social media or quotes that I just cringe, um, yeah, yeah because, you know, uh, you know, I want to
1: say, are you serious? Let's talk. If you're serious about this, let's talk about what that means.
0: Yeah. 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 Now well, that's that's for another time. But I think it's a great I think it's a great <laughs> thing What this. So, Dan, let me ask you this question. We you know, so I, I mean. What advice would you give to us going forward and with all of this stuff? Um, it's a, it's a diff- difficult time. I think it's a difficult time in the church. I think we've all sensed it. There's all kinds of things coming together at one time, as you mentioned, some of them, and there's more. And we've come out of a pandemic that is still around, but we've learned, we're have learned we learning to live with it. And there's just a lot of, I mean, I, I can tell you that in the, uh, in the last three or four years before I retired as pastor, I had conversations with just a lot of Christians who were just, I mean, there was angst. And, and the world is changing for some of them and they don't, they can't put their finger on it. You know, I, I've had, how many people have said to me and I've heard, they'll say, you know, the America I grew up in is not the America today. And I don't pursue that because I think what they're thinking is not what I'm thinking. And, and uh, yeah. I, I think they're probably not going to be too happy with me if I think what I'm, I'm thinking, but there's, there's a lot of stuff going on. And so as the church, because I think you're again, we're, we're we're the we're the ministers of reconciliation in the world. We're that's who we are. That's who we're supposed to be. Uh, we're supposed to be bringing people together, not driving the power. We have to call out injustice. We have to do that. That's part of the job. But um, what what do we do? What 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 are some small steps we can take as followers of Jesus in this time?
1: Yeah. Well, I, I think you've touched on them um, in, in 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 your comments. Um, I, I think what what does it mean to be the peacemakers who are marked as children of God? I mean, we we have we have a mandate to bring peace. We we follow the Prince of Peace. So, you know, what are the things that make for peace? It just—it strikes me that self-examination and and, and kind of rigorous uh, looking at myself and ourselves is really important. So what what are we doing? I mean, we live in a culture that dehumanizes, that is that sanctions violence, that uh, is is caught up in greed and acquisition and accomplishment, and. The polarized discourse of our society has somehow infected the church. We're caught up in it, and it's just so. It just seems to me that we've got to begin with recognizing um, how deeply we have been caught up in the sin of our own culture, um, and 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 then just doing some really practical things. I mean, our, stop the dehumanization. Um, you know, are are there are there ways that that I look at people as enemies or issues rather than you know fellow human beings? Uh, so what what are the ways, what are the healing ways that I can we're listening is, you know, we're hardwired right now uh, in our culture to to talk and to argue and to press my opinion? Well, maybe it's followers of Jesus. It it's necessary that we do a lot of listening and not just listening just to say okay you know I, I, I let you have your say but the type of listening that allows that that opens me up to someone changing yeah who who I think I am changing my values so <clears throat> I think it's just these these kinds of very just getting back to the gospel and what it means essentially you know to to recognize that that the heart of the bible the heart of the faith as i understood it as jesus said is is to love god with all my heart soul mind and strength to love my neighbor as myself and really begin i mean we're good at the first the the first part not so good at the second so how how does loving my neighbor shape my ethic and my response to other human beings?
0: One of my great disappointments in our context, Dan, and I've said this before, is that uh, for Christians, too many of us, when it comes to dilemmas, we've got to make decisions, is that our first thought is not, how do I best love my neighbor? But it's, I've got my rights. And, and I think that, that once, you, once you do that, you already start off in the wrong direction.
1: Right. Uh, so and I'm, not, I'm, not,
0: I'm not a fan of violating people's rights. That isn't my point. My point simply is if me, if I start with what is owed to me as opposed to what I may owe you, we're already off on the wrong path. We're already off on the wrong foot. Yeah.
1: So have this attitude that was in Christ yeah. though he existed in the very form of God, did not, as J.B. Phillips translated, did not cling to his prerogatives as yeah. God, but poured himself out. I mean, if we're followers of the crucified one, he's our model. So, I mean, I, I don't see anywhere in the Bible where uh, Jesus, or at least in the New Testament, where, where Jesus tells his followers to, to build a nation or to save a nation. Right. <clears throat> as a matter of fact, quite the opposite. I mean, don't, don't think about what you're doing here as, as tied to a particular political entity. Yeah. Um, yeah be my witnesses in Judea and Samaria and the other part be my witnesses
0: well that's the other thing I really dislike the language that we we uh in the church today that is so common about it talking about advancing the kingdom or bringing the kingdom because that's not New Testament either New Testament doesn't say we're to bring the kingdom or advance the kingdom the kingdom's here Jesus has brought the kingdom what's my job what's your job bear witness to it Mm -hmm. in word and in deed just bear witness that it's here and that god is working so
1: yeah and it's it's i mean you still hear that dominion Mm -hmm. doctrine of discovery language in some of the some of the church right now people are talking about the need you know the calling to take dominion yeah you know in the united states christians should be you know we 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 just need to put christians in control of everything
0: which, yeah and,
1: and that's what god is calling us to do
0: yeah and uh that,
1: that goes all the way back
0: to yeah and a cursory survey of history yeah. will tell us that that has yet to work out well <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> anyway all right dan i want to thank you for this conversation it has been good and uh appreciate your insights and i want to at some point uh, just a little preview here do a conversation with you with the New uh, uh, the New Testament that's come out, the Native people, what's it called?
1: First Nations Version.
0: First Nations Version of New Testament, yeah. which is an indigenous conceptual translation, it sounds like to
1: me. Mm, yeah.
0: yeah, I'd like yeah. to really, I got to get a copy because I want to poke around in it. We'll have that conversation. Maybe we'll talk some hermeneutics. We'll use that hey. and we'll talk some biblical interpretation. So anyway, all right. Easy stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, thank you very much, Dan. And everybody, thank you. And uh, glad for, that you have tuned in. Uh, I'm Alan Bevere. And uh, the patron saint of Faith-Seeking Understanding University here is Anselm of Canterbury, who said, I do not seek to understand that I may believe, but I believe in order to understand. And so I say to all of you, keep seeking. My friends, have a great day. Thank you.